I'm David M. Drucker with the Washington Examiner, and welcome to another edition of In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024, a ricochet podcast and a companion to my forthcoming book from 12 books, In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024 and the Future of the GOP. On this episode, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Now, this is an audio broadcast, obviously. So you can't see what I could see when I interviewed Pompeo recently for In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024. But the former Secretary of State has lost a ton of weight. I mean, he looks great. And you know what they say about presidential contenders who get into shape prior to the onset of a campaign. It usually means that they, too, see themselves as White House material. Speaking of, during Trump's term in the White House, Perhaps no other Republican in America, perhaps no individual outside of Trump's family members, were as trusted by the former president and were as engaged in in the decisions he made as Mike Pompeo, who began in the administration as director of the Central Intelligence Agency before moving over from Langley to Foggy Bottom to become Secretary of State. And so just like I did with my forthcoming book, and per the mission of this podcast, In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024, we talked in depth about the former president's leadership of the Republican Party and the country and the mark he made on both, while also spending a considerable amount of time on Pompeo and given the chance where he might take the party himself. And now, my conversation with Mike Pompeo. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, thanks so much for joining me on In Trump's Shadow, the battle for 2024. David, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure, sir. Let me jump right in because as I always sort of joke with you, but I'm always serious with the joke, you're efficient, they will pull you. (laughs) On January 8th of this year, um, you were still the sitting Secretary of State and you tweeted a picture of yourself. DNI Ratcliffe and National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien seated around a table with a line about how grateful you were to work alongside men you described as great patriots who make America and the world safer and more prosperous. On that day, what was the underlying message of that tweet with that picture? Oh, my goodness. I have to go back and look at it. My, my sense is, though, I, I remember what I was doing in all of January. Um, I was talking about the work we'd done for four years, uh, the people that we'd worked with. I'd had the privilege to serve at the CIA. I'd had the privilege to serve as the Secretary of State. They each had their own space. Uh, and we were thanking the professionals, the people who'd worked on behalf of America in the Trump administration. So my sense is this was a thank you for the work that they had done alongside of us. Uh, Many people put in awful long hours to support the Secretary of State and to support the CIA director. I'm sure that Ambassador O'Brien and uh, Director Ratcliffe felt the same way. Uh, This was a long planned series of tweets. I think I tweeted about every 30 minutes for about 25 days. This was one among many of thank yous, heartfelt thank yous uh, to people who had served America in important ways during our time in office. You were a member of Congress from January 2011 through late January of 2017, before you went into the the Trump administration as CIA director and later Secretary of State. Uh, 
what I find interesting just about this sort of uh, period before uh, the 2020 election over a period of years is, you know, you voted twice to certify the Electoral College winner. Uh, you voted to certify Barack Obama's reelection as well as President Trump's um, election in 2016. Uh, in the midst of all of that, we saw a trend beginning with George W. Bush and then with Trump, where a few Democrats uh, voted against certification of the Electoral College victory that had been certified by the states. And then in 2020, we saw a majority of House Republicans vote against certification of the Electoral College winner that had been certified by the states. I'm wondering, and especially because of your travels around the world on behalf of the U.S., if the trend that we saw first with a few Democrats over the years who didn't like the Republican winner and then a majority of House Republicans who didn't like the Democratic winner, if you're worried about the trend of our peaceful transfer of power between the parties. No, not, not at all. Uh, our, our system works. This process works. Uh, we have a court system where uh, technical issues about ballots and the like can be resolved. I hope it's always resolved at the state level. Uh, we have a legislative process where the American people can hold their state elected officials, state reps, state senators, state delegates in some states. They can hold those leaders accountable if they mess up an election. Uh, no, we, we have a we have an set of institutions that works. If they if the American people think that a particular election wasn't done well, they can throw out the rascals who screwed it up. Uh, they right. They by the way, we, they have access. Right. We now have everybody can get everybody can get on social media. You can be your own broadcaster. Uh, you can do, do a podcast. Uh, right. These these tools are available. Uh, all, all the systems for American democracy. What what we have to do is we have to be mindful that uh, rules without enforcement aren't worth a darn. The Soviet Union had a constitution that Justice Scalia spoke about at some length, which guaranteed all kinds of flowery things, and yet uh, didn't amount to a hill of beans. We have to make sure that our processes, our systems are enforced, our, our, our votes are counted once and only once, that we, the, the idea that we wouldn't ID voters is just nutty to me, right? We wouldn't know who actually showed up to cast this most important thing we get to do, this privilege of a blue passport holder, for goodness sake. We get a chance to vote in the United States. No, I, I think these institutions are strong. They're resilient. Uh, we always have, uh, we have days that are better than others in America, but I, I believe that the system that, that the founders left for us is fundamentally the most exceptional in the history of the world. And I have enormous confidence that it will stand uh, whatever is presented to it. Let's go back in time a little bit. Um, in 2016, in that campaign, you were initially a supporter of Senator Marco Rubio, uh, and you were quite an effective surrogate for him. I mean, you would you would go on conservative platforms and and extol his virtues. And and about President, future President Trump at the time, uh, you had said that you were worried he might have some authoritarian tendencies. I'm not quoting you verbatim, but you were worried yeah. about him running roughshod over the Constitution. How did you reconcile, uh, because so much of In Trump's shadow is about how his impact on the party, um, how did you reconcile um, your concerns about him at that time? And how did it, and what did you observe over time working for him that really ended up dispelling so many of the concerns that you voiced back then? Well, three thoughts. Uh, first is, uh, I wasn't a very effective surrogate for Marco Rubio. <laughs> didn't didn't go very well. So uh, 
Uh, I always blame the candidate for that. I let the surrogates <laughs> off the hook. Fair enough. Uh, but I was uh, I was out fighting for him. Uh, when I when I find someone who I think would be good, uh, I am all in. I'm going to go engage in uh, all use all the powers of rhetoric that I have to hopefully help that person be successful. I certainly tried to do that for Senator Rubio. Second, uh, I, as, as we look back on these last eight months and then the four years before that, uh, I, I got to tell you, uh, if, if you want to stare at the party that is undoing our republic, it is a clear call. It's why I get to my third point, which is this was easy for me. Once the primary season was over, it was very easy for me. It was binary. It was Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. This was easy. You can find me uh, in and around the time that it became clear President Trump was going to be successful, out argue making the case for his presidency in the same way, with the same energy and vigor that I made it for Senator Rubio. It wasn't it wasn't hard. It wasn't intellectually difficult. I didn't have to I didn't have to pull the Bill Crystal right silliness that says I'm a Biden Democrat. Right? I mean, this is just this is nutty stuff for someone who pretended to be a conservative for two decades. Uh, I believed in those ideas, and I came to believe that President Trump would assemble a team, I had no idea it would include me, uh, assemble a team that uh, ultimately delivered on behalf of the American people with the conservative principles that I cared about. And I think the four years uh, demonstrated that, whether it was the buildup of the military defense that we engaged in, whether it was demanding our allies participate, whether it was the pro-life effort that we engaged in, I think we were the most pro-life administration in the history of the United States. Um, I, I think it demonstrated all along the way that um, that was the not only the right decision to support President Trump to make sure that he was successful in November of 2020, but to have joined the administration was an enormous privilege. Did you know that he would govern as conservatively as he did on some of these um, bread and butter issues for conservatives? Or did you just hope and think, well, at least if he's willing to hire me, that's somebody in there that's conservative that can help him along? Uh, you know, you never know how presidents are going to uh, perform once they're in office, right? But we always there's always uncertainty. It's why I think I think the American people are so often disappointed. What I did come to understand was that President Trump would do his darndest to deliver on the promises that he'd made, uh, and he made promises about the kind of judges and justices he would select. He made promises about protecting the unborn. He made promises about building up the American military, and I came to see. Uh, early on that he was going to focus on those things. Indeed, not only were they promises he was going to keep, but they would be real priorities of his. Uh, and, you know, I uh, I only wish we'd have had four more years to continue to work on that project. I've talked to a lot of Republican voters uh, over the past few years, and, and a lot of them would tell me that they they liked the Trump agenda. They liked what he, what you were accomplishing in office, but that they could not stomach the provocative rhetoric and what they perceive to be a lot of chaos coming out of the White House. And and this impacted their votes last year. My, my question to you is, what do you think that they misunderstood about the president and his administration and how you guys operated? Well, there was a lot of noise. Uh, there's no doubt about that. This is a president who was impeached twice, <laughs> right? Once for a crazy made up idea that President Trump was a Russian asset and the second time over a phone call. <laughs> I mean, if you if you talk about risk to a republic, this is a Democrat House of Representatives that used pure politics to impeach a president not once but twice, or things that can only be described uh, as 
inconsistent with the facts as we came to know them, right? And uh, so, yeah, I get why people thought there was a lot of noise. The Democrats and their media lackeys made an awful lot of noise. There, there's no doubt about that. They tried to stir up trouble and angst and dial it up to, you know, red line every day. Uh, for whatever one wants to say about President Trump's Twitter account, I think it is worthy a thousand times over looking for the accounting of what we did in those four years. And I think when I think when sincere people who are truly trying to evaluate, they're not behaving politically, they're not manning the ramparts, advocating for a, a cause that they care about, they just seriously want to look at what were the actions that took place during those four years. I think the work that we did stacks up pretty well against history. Does President Trump's approach to foreign policy and the decisions he made in that regard fit within a doctrine? Is there a Trump doctrine? Yes, I, I think I uh, was able to uh, articulate this pretty well. I gave a speech at the Claremont Institute. Uh, it's been a couple of years now where we talked about three central theses. Right? One is the idea of restraint. That restraint, you can see what happens when you don't exercise. Just these last eight months, you can see it. The restraint is, is not hubris. It's not arrogance. It says we're going to back up our words with actual deeds. People are going to believe the things that we say, and we may not say quite as much as some others might as say for that reason. Uh, the second idea was this idea of realism. You can pretend all you want that Jerusalem isn't the rightful capital of Israel, but the facts on the ground make clear that it is. The Golan Heights are owned and controlled and appropriately sold by the Israelis. It is, it is realistic to believe that you can perform counterterrorism operation without putting 20 or 40 or 60,000 American soldiers on the ground. That's, that's a realism that we brought and combined with the restraint. Uh, and then finally, it's a, it's a recognition that some of the post-World War II institutions that had designed to build out peace do exactly the opposite of that. And so we were absolutely relentless in demanding that these institutions justify their continued existence. And when they couldn't, or we couldn't convince them that they ought to, we simply said, we're not going to waste American taxpayer resources in those places, whether it was uh, the UN Human Rights Commission or the World Health Organization or any of the other thousands of multiple letter organizations that were built with noble purposes, but that had lost their way. Uh, we were going to demand that they live up to their ideals. And when they couldn't, we weren't going to participate in them anymore. Is there a Pompeo doctrine? And if so, is it any different than the Trump doctrine? No, you're, you're the secretary of state. You work for the commander in chief. But I mean, today, you no longer work for the commander in chief. Is there a Pompeo doctrine? Oh, goodness. I, I am confident that if you put 20 questions in front of President Trump and me, we'd answer 16, 17, 18 of them. Say, but I'm confident that a couple, three, we might well disagree on. Uh, but make no mistake about it, the central thesis, right, the central thesis that American power matters, that squandering it is dangerous, that making promises that you're not prepared to live up to is a fool's errand, and that uh, without an important, capable, strategically designed military, that American diplomacy is awash. Uh, I, think, I think President Trump would agree with those three premises, and I know I certainly do. In my reporting on President Biden's chaotic and mismanaged withdrawal from Afghanistan, Republican strategists have told me something really interesting. They have told me in their polling and particularly in their focus groups that Republican voters have told them that U.S. 
that had President Trump been reelected, he would have left military forces in Afghanistan and not completed a complete withdrawal. They say disapprovingly, the chaos and the threat to the U.S. homeland from terrorists wouldn't have existed because President Trump would have left forces in Afghanistan to deal with Afghanistan as a terrorist breeding ground. I wanted to ask you, what was the plan? Was it to leave forces in Afghanistan for that reason, or would we have seen a complete U.S. military withdrawal stipulating that I'm sure you believe, and, and I have no reason to argue, that you would have handled this withdrawal differently? Yeah. You know, it's fascinating. Just as an aside, I don't know that any Secretary of State's ever been asked to conjecture more about what the future would have held had he, held, had he still been there, and to try and prove out the absence of a, uh, prove out a counterfactual hypothesis. This is what the left wants asked. Well, would you would have done the same thing? This is what President Biden wants. It is nutty. They own this. On January 20th of 2017, President Trump owned it all. He owned the North Korean problem. He owned the ISIS problem. We owned the failure of NATO problem. We owned massive instability in the Middle East. We owned a crazy nuclear deal from the Iranians. We owned it. President Trump owned everything. President Biden owned everything on January 20th. 2021 in that same way, make no mistake about it. With, with that as the background, um, we were determined to get our young men and women out of there as fast as we could. You need to go only look at the president's Twitter account from late 2015 on, you know precisely what his objective was. So uh, absolutely the mission set that I was squared up on, we did it as quickly and as, as orderly as we could. We maintained, for lack of a better term, Afghan stability, for four years and took over 80% of the troops out. We were down to just over 2,500 and we still had managed to deliver deterrence. The Taliban didn't roll up Afghan checkpoints and capitals in Afghanistan. They didn't threaten Americans. They didn't kill, there weren't 13 Americans killed after we signed an agreement with the Afghan government and with the Taliban. Those are factually accurate statements, which no one can dispute. And uh, as for what our path forward was, it would, I can't imagine it would have changed. The path forward was get out, get as few people as you can there as quickly as you can. But we've got to make sure that we have the conditions correct. We set out a set of conditions for the Afghan government that they had to comply with. We'd asked Afghan NGOs to provide support. We had conditions for the Taliban as well. We had a coherent thesis that said, you go from 15,000 to 8,600, you stop, you pause, you evaluate the conditions. We did the same thing at about 4,700. From 8,600 to 4,700, we did it again down to 26 or 2,800 folks by the middle of January of 2020. In each case, we stopped, we paused, we evaluated the conditions and made a determination whether America was better off continuing or if we could get to a different force posture that was better. Uh, I, I can't tell you what would have happened on January 21st had we still been there, but I can tell you what we delivered for four years. We delivered a much smaller footprint. We put many fewer American lives at risk. We were expending much less American treasure and we still Bill had a deterrence model that was delivering for the American people. This next question is really about Republicans and Republicans, because I, I we're both old enough just to be clear here. <laughs> you don't think it's, it's coming. Look, if it's coming from a different direction, I will tell you. But this is really just about some interesting developments, I feel like, within the party. We are both old enough, uh, I guess, fortunately, because it sure beats the alternative, that we That's remember fair. the election of Ronald Reagan. And I think in our lifetime since the election of Ronald Reagan, between the two major parties in the United States, the Republican Party has been in, believed to be and often acted as the more hawkish party, willing to project American power. Um, and 
willing to um, project American military power in particular. There has been a debate within the party about how much we should be projecting power and what kind of power that really didn't exist before President Trump ran for president in 20, first 2015, and then of course 2016 in a campaign that lasted over a year. Is the Republican Party still a hawkish party that believes in projecting power, or is it now uh, in the Trump era more hesitant and less willing to send troops overseas to maintain long-term deployments uh, to project American power? It's an important question. Uh, It's a little too simplistic to say hawk, not hawk. Uh, One needs to think about what kind of power one is prepared to use and for what ends. So yes, the parties had this big debate. I I wouldn't say that the first time they had it was in the Trump administration. I remember Nixon and the Vietnam War as well. We're both old enough for that one too, although a little bit earlier. you need to think about what that means. American power comes in many forms, not just its military. Our economic might is incredibly important. It gives us a powerful diplomatic set of tools. Our uh, countries want to be friends and partner with the United States of America. So we have lots of pieces of leverage that the United States can certainly use. Uh, it, it needs to be backed up by a powerful cap- set of capabilities. Those capabilities no longer are just, I, I was an old armor officer, but it's not just tanks and infantrymen anymore. It's the capacity to know where information is and how to get it where it needs to be. It's the capacity to make sure that your information isn't stolen or otherwise uh, borrowed by an adversary. It's the capacity to control and uh, understand what's going on in the space. Right. So it's much more complicated set of tools now, but that's good for the United States, uh, net net. Second, the big difference hasn't been hawkishness between the Democrats and the Republicans, in my view. It's been for what purposes? The, the left believes that America is the problem in the world. The conservatives in America have always believed that America has been a force for good. And it's not that we always get it right, uh, but it's that when we go abroad, when we use our power abroad, military power or otherwise, that we are doing it certainly with an idea that we're going to make America better off, but we're trying to make the world a better place too. We're not the problem. We are often the solution. I think that actually separates the two parties, right? The wing of the Democrat Party today thinks deeply that the decisions we made with respect to Israel are the wrong decisions. I think they're an important friend and ally and partner. Uh, They they think that uh, America's willingness to work uh, with Arab nations in the Middle East, right? They've disconnected from the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. I view the kingdom of Saudi Arabia as a central linchpin for American security in the Middle East. Uh, We've delivered the Abraham Accords. The left wants to continue to try and have uh, really fun phone calls with the Palestinians. I mean, this is this is th- this doesn't reflect the reality. And uh, their idea too around the world is very different than ours. I worked really hard on a set of human rights issues at the State Department, but I regrounded them in American history. I regrounded them these central ideas of liberty and freedom and the ability of people to practice their faith and the the condition that we find ourselves in. That is, each human being has the dignity that comes because we were all created in the image of God. The left rejects each one of those ideas and would rather simply talk about uh, uh, some ideas of equity, racial outcomes around the world. And uh, is a country particularly diverse and inclusive? (laughs) And are we are we are we working on climate change hard enough? Are we throwing enough money away chasing climate change around the world? 
these are very, they, they are hawkish too. They've got Secretary, Cal, Secretary Kerry around the world trying to foist American power on countries all around. Uh, when I say power, I don't mean electrical or coal-fired power. I mean American might around the world. These are different conceptions of America and the world for sure. You were elected a humble congressman from Kansas. It was your first foray in Washington as an elected official, a political official, really. And, you know, 2010 was the year of the Tea Party and the Republican Party sort of rediscovering its its roots as the party that cared about the debt and the deficit and spending. And at that time, the party embraced entitlement reform. And of course, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, uh, they've got a formula. Spending on them goes up every year, whether we like it or not, unless something's <laughs> done. Yeah. Um, but, you know, President Trump very astutely when he ran for president said running on entitlement reform like Speaker Ryan did and, and Republicans like him did is crazy because Republicans like Medicare and they like Social Security and they don't want anybody to mess with it. And I'm just wondering if you think Republican voters in this era really care about the size and scope of the debt and the deficit or if they just care about whether or not they like what the government is spending money on. David, I hope they care. Uh, and if they don't, um, their grandkids are going to care. Uh, I, I agree with you. Uh, I think Republicans lost our way, too. We spent an awful lot of money uh, when we had control as well. Uh, there was a big group of us that came in in 2010, tried to fight it. Some folks gave up. Uh, it, it is simply not the case that we don't have to have a, a government that is scaled to American capacity, right? debt to GDP or deficits to GDP uh, have to be the, have, a successful civilization doesn't last long if they get out of whack there. We are out of whack and heading even further that direction. I think, I think not just conservatives, but I think most families, most people who are middle-class trying to make a living, I think they get it. Uh, there are days other issues subsume them and things become a higher priority. But I really hope that the next set of leaders, the next set of Republican leaders, and I pray someday Democrat leaders will seriously take this idea that you that economic growth can't be outstripped by the size and scale of our government. Before I let you go, I want to ask you a couple of political questions, in particular about CAVPAC, which is the political action committee you launched this year. You've been traveling the country campaigning for Republicans up and down the ballot. Have you learned anything that surprised you? Uh, have you learned anything that worries you or or gives you optimism uh, about where the country is headed? I'll give you one of each, David. I am surprised, uh, and maybe I shouldn't be, but I am surprised how deeply uh, so many people are worried about losing their right to speak freely. Shorthand might be cancel culture, that doesn't quite describe it, but I've heard so many folks say, Mike, I, I don't feel like I can talk about the things I believe in at work. Uh, they watched their churches be shut down by government during the virus. Um, they, they feel like they're losing their voice. I had a business leader the other day say that she couldn't, uh, she didn't feel like she could talk about the things she believed in because she would have customers leave her company. And so I, I hear that throughout. And I don't know if it's surprising, but it's certainly gloomy that Americans no longer feel like they can express their views, whether they are liberal or conservative. Otherwise, every American should, should not feel under a threat of assault or worse uh, if they speak their mind about the things that they have come to believe in in their time here. Uh, the second thing, more optimistic, is that there is, uh, there is a resurgence taking place like I felt back when I ran in 
uh, end of 09 and the beginning of 2010 were ordinary people who just hadn't done politics before and decided they're going to get after it. Had a fellow tell me he'd never been to a city council meeting and he's going to run for city council. <laughs> Someone tell me he'd never been he'd never been involved in the PTA and his kids were grown, but he saw what was happening in the local school system. He was going to start going to PTA meetings and making his voice heard. I could repeat that dozens and dozens and dozens of times over. I, that is certainly anecdote data, not data. But my sense is that Americans are very concerned about the direction that their culture and their country are taking, and they're going to do their part as part of their place, their city council, their church, their what, their faith community, uh, to try and reclaim it. Finally, Secretary Pompeo, uh, this is an audio broadcast, but you and I can see each other, which allows for a more free-flowing conversation. And uh, since you left Foggy Bottom, you apparently are in great shape. You look really good. And you know what people say when people get in shape, when you're in their line of work, um, when they're in your line of work, and that is, do they have a campaign in mind? And, and what I really wanted to ask you is this, because I know it's too early to make any decision about anything, and I wouldn't get that lucky anyway, even if you had. <laughs> but if a former President Donald Trump decided to run for for president in 2024, mounting a third White House bid, would that point blank preclude you in your mind from running for president in 2024 it, if it was something you had otherwise decided you wanted to do? Oh, David, it's an awful long way from thinking about 2024. Uh, no, I mean, look, you, we've got to, someone who decides to run for president of the United States uh, has to have come to believe that they are the right leader for the moment, that they have something that is really important and unique to offer the American people. Susan and I will think and pray and work and try and figure our way through these next two years and then we'll come to a decision point. Um, you know, as for my, uh, as for my health, uh, I, I did it, I did it not for politics, but for my cardiologist and my family, <laughs> trying, to, trying to get a little bit healthier. I, the healthiest I've ever been when, when I was a young cadet at West Point, I wasn't even dreaming about running for office there. So one should not mistake at least a temporary and I hope permanent, uh, a healthier condition to be in any way connected to something that might happen a year or two or five from now. If you have any tips, please pass them along. Secretary <laughs> of State Mike Pompeo, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, thank you so much for joining us on In Trump's Shadow. Thank you, David. Bless you. So long. Take care. Scott Immergut is the producer of In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024. My book publishes October 19th, and is available for pre-order. On a daily basis, you can catch my work online at www.washingtonexaminer.com. I'm David M. Drucker. Thanks for listening. Ricochet. Join the conversation.